0: So Psalm 96, we're uh, we're about two-thirds of the way through our series in the Psalms uh, right now. Uh, The Psalms just give you sort of a general uh, reminder, uh, refresher, reintroduction. The Psalms are prayer songs. They're given for people to speak to God, uh, for our relationship with God, our life with God. And as Christians, we know that we have that Relationship with God. We have that life with God entirely and only in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has the perfect relationship with God. Jesus is the one who lives with God forever. And he does so Jesus relates to God and lives with God just as God himself would do if he were a human being. Uh, that's that's the sort of the gospel, uh, because that's exactly who Jesus is. He's, he's God in the flesh. He's the Word of God, made flesh. He's got Himself, become a human being in order to relate to God on our behalf, to do that as our, our substitute, our representative. So Jesus has the relationship with God that we were made for. Jesus has the relationship with God that we all need. Really, whether you know you need that or not, Jesus has that relationship with God that we were made for and that we need, and Jesus gives himself to us, and he opens up his own life to us so that what is his may also be ours. Um, So we can never relate to God in and of ourselves. We can never relate to God immediately but only immediately, that is, through our mediator, through Jesus Christ, through his relationship with God as our mediator. It's through trust in Jesus as our representative, it's through our spiritual union with him that we can relate to God with Christ's own relationship. We can pray to God with Christ's own prayers which very prominently include the Psalms. So with the Psalms, we have God's own word given to us. We have prayer songs that the incarnate word himself has taken on his lips when he came into the world, uh, using them as the words of true humanity spoken to God. And uh, Jesus has shared these words with us, and he's giving us his own words to say to God in his name. And so this introduction, uh, it, again, serves as a general reminder of our approach to the Psalms throughout our whole series. And We, we do hit on those points uh, through a lot of our sermons on the Psalms. But it's also particularly important for us to remember this for Psalm 96, which is specifically... A call to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. So in order to know what that means, uh, we have to understand who God is, what the splendor of holiness is, what worship is, how to do it, how to have this this relationship of worship all in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing as Christians as we come to Psalm 96. So so let me pray, and then we'll read scripture. Father, we pray that uh, this, this beautiful word would resound in our hearts, that it would transform our minds, that you would do that work by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would make us not only attentive and able to understand what's being said out of your word, but that you would make us able to use this word as our own and make it our, our own through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for the most part, uh, the Psalms, all of them, uh, were written to be used in corporate worship, even the ones that really are sort of in that first-person singular, um, that sort of individual uh, either laments or praise or whatever uh, hymns of thanksgiving that uh, might be just sort of a singular individual expression, Uh, even those really are best understood to to be taken and used um, best in in the context of corporate worship. Uh, This is one of the few times in our series uh, where we're we're actually going to focus on the actual times that we have together in worship. Uh, A lot of the psalms have to do with different parts of our lives, and maybe sung uh, well in worship together, but this this psalm really is about our worship. It's about our worship, so we're going to spend time looking at that, uh, because this psalm explicitly addresses several facets of, of our public, corporate worship. Overall, this psalm is a call to worship. A call to worship. And we, uh, we often use it in that place in our liturgy, in our service, like we did this morning, if you go back to the, the front cover, uh, some of these verses appear as our call to worship this morning. So the call to worship is the very first element of our service. And it's, uh, it comes first because corporate worship only takes place at God's initiative. Because he's the one who calls us to worship. Um, God is the one who thought up the idea of worship. Who thought up the idea of you worshiping. God is the one who created us to participate in worship. And when we, when we devoted ourselves to anti-worship, when we set ourselves against God by our sin, he was the one who took the initiative, it was his plan from, the beginning, from before the beginning. He was the one who redeemed us by his grace, who set things back right between us and made it possible for us to enter into worship again and participate in worship again. He's the one who made that possible. God was the one who saved us through the blood of his son, Jesus, so that we could be restored to participation in in true worship. And God is the one who has made all of this known to you through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God is the one um, who's taken the initiative in every way. God is the one who calls you to worship. That's why the first element of our liturgy is this call to worship. And we find this... This language, this explicit language used several times in Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2, it says, Sing to Yahweh. It says that three times. In verse 3, it says, Declare his glory. Verse 7, Ascribe glory to Yahweh. Verse 8, Bring an offering and come into his courts, come into his presence. Verse 9, Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. So there are thirteen imperatives in this psalm. Thirteen calling us to worship. So it's a call to worship. Uh, in in First Corinthians, I mean sorry, First Chronicles sixteen, uh, in the Old Testament, it's recorded that, that most of this psalm, most of the verses, most of the content of this psalm was sung almost word for word. By King David, as he brought the ark of the presence of Yahweh, brought it up into Jerusalem and into the tent that he had pitched for it in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. That this psalm uh, was a bulk of the, the singing that King David did before the presence of the Lord that day. This language was used, therefore, in the very first tabernacle worship in Jerusalem this psalm, this language. And the congregation on that day, thousands of years ago, was composed mainly of the people of Israel. And that's a mostly homogenous group, ethnically speaking and nationally speaking and culturally speaking. Mostly homogenous group that used this psalm on that first day of uh, tabernacle worship in Jerusalem. But the content of the psalm is a global call to worship. It extends well beyond the borders of Israel. It's a call for all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, to come into the presence of Yahweh, and to do so as his own holy people, really, as his own people. So that language also appears throughout the psalm. In verse, verse 1, it sings to Yahweh, all the earth. Not just Israel, not just the people who were hearing it, used that first tabernacle worship service in Jerusalem that day. From King David, sing to Yahweh all the earth. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, and so on and so forth. So God intends for corporate worship, even that mostly homogenous first service there in Jerusalem, uh, he intends for all worship, and especially our worship now, our corporate worship, to have an expansive, outward-facing character. We, right here, right now, in this hour, in this place, we're not to be closed off. We're not to be fortified over and against the world. We're not to be ingrown. We're not to be exclusivistic. Our very worship, everything that's taking place in our worship service, our very worship is meant to be a call to worship to the nations, to all of those in the world, a call to outsiders to come and join us in worshiping Yahweh because he's the one true God of all the earth, the one true God of every single person in the world. And the language of this psalm and really, the language uh, throughout the scriptures, it assumes that there will be such outsiders within earshot of our corporate worship. It assumes they're going to be here. It assumes the public nature of our worship. This is not private worship. Everybody's invited to this. All are invited. All are welcome. All may come. All are called to worship the one true God in the splendor of holiness. And uh, so what does that mean, this worship? What are we doing? Uh, really, in an overall sense, I think this is a, a great whole Bible theological definition of what worship in the splendor of holiness ultimately means. And uh, if you want to write it down, I should have put it in the um, in the bulletin on the front page. It's one of the quotes, but I'll say it slowly, maybe a couple times. It's by a... Um, theologian and pastor named James Torrance who was a Scottish writer and I've I've said this before but quote him again, he says that worship is the gift of participating through the spirit in the incarnate son's communion with the father I'm going to repeat it and whether you're writing it down or not I think it's good for us all to hear that again worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit, in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. In Jesus Christ's communion with the Father. We get to participate in that as a gift through the Holy Spirit. So in the Bible, in the Bible worship is more synonymous with communion than it is with just like singing praise. I think it gets used a lot of times just as a synonym for singing praise. But in the Bible, really, uh, and theologically speaking, worship is more synonymous with communion. So, worship, even as it's described here in Psalm 96, it means singing. Yeah, sing to the Lord. It also means proclaiming the the gospel, declaring his glory and all the marvelous works that he's done. And all of that in an evangelistic sense to the nations, to all peoples. It also means bringing an offering. It also means coming into his courts, into his presence, something uh, we associate in our minds a little bit more with the actual moment of communion, drawing near to him. And all of this is worship, and it's all to be done in the splendor of holiness, in the splendor of holiness. That is to say, all these things that God is calling us to do as elements of worship, and really, if you look through our whole liturgy, you find each of the elements of worship are, are meant to be uh, reflections of what worship really is throughout the scriptures. Um, all these things that God is calling us to do as elements of worship are to be done in the, in the splendor, the wonderful splendor, the majestic beauty of holiness. Holiness. True holiness. True holiness is Splendid And it's that very Splendor that functions To call all the peoples to worship It's because It's a beautiful thing this holiness In which we worship the Lord It's a beautiful thing It'll be an attractive thing To outsiders so Tim Keller says There's no better way to show skeptics The greatness of God And the beauty of his truth Than through worship And that is true when you're talking about truly worshiping in the splendor of holiness. No skeptic was ever won over by the haughty self-importance of worship when we just do it right. We face that temptation in Reformed churches. We do worship right and Maybe we have some disdain for the other people who don't. That's a reality. But nobody ever exclaimed, "How splendid," when they saw the church worship in holier-than-thouness. Nobody ever said that that was great. Nobody was ever convinced of the gospel uh, just because self-important people did worship right. Uh, that's, that's ugly. That can be ugly. That's not, that's not true holiness. True holiness has a winning beauty. It's a splendor that positively calls and draws people to worship Yahweh. So what is that holiness? Because I think we need to talk about it clearly and not uh, mistake it for misrepresented as that holier than thouness. ness right? Um, what is true holiness? Holiness is that... State, and it's that quality of life of being set apart by God, set apart for God, set apart to be like God. Holiness is that state and quality of being set apart by God, for God, and to be like God. Holiness is what it looks like for a human being to live in relationship with God just as the Holy God Himself would do if He were a human being. Holiness is what it looks like, therefore, for the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, to live in communion with the Father, to live His whole life in communion with the Father. That's what real holiness is. You look at the life of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, relating to God. And and, uh, that holiness... By his grace, it applies to us, not just to Jesus Christ, but to us, as we're united to Jesus Christ, as we're united to the Holy One, by his Holy Spirit, to live with him in his holy relationship to the Father. And this is how we're restored to worship, in the splendor of holiness. We're brought right in, we're brought all the way in to the relational life of the triune God through Jesus Christ. That's a lot of heavy language. It's not abstract. It's not abstract. It's the most concrete thing in all reality and the whole movement of our liturgy. Maybe you've been participating in it for years without really being conscious of it, but really the whole movement of our liturgy, our service of worship is arranged to communicate this and participate in it together. We're entering into Jesus' own relationship with God, his own communion with God in his own holiness. That's what we're doing It's not abstract, it is concrete, but I understand it can be very hard to connect to it. It can be very hard to wrap your mind around that idea of worship, so let me put it another way. Worshiping the Lord in the splendor of holiness, it just means love. That's what it means. It means love. Nowhere in the Bible is that more clear than in the Apostle Paul's treatise concerning corporate worship. Which you may be racking your brain to think of, where does the Apostle Paul give a treatise concerning corporate worship? It's in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 11 through 16. That whole thing is about corporate worship, it's about the church's gathered worship. All those chapters, 11 through 16, it's one long section on worship, it discusses the communion that we have in the Lord's Supper, it discusses the use of our spiritual gifts in worship when we're get, getting together. It discusses the gospel that we proclaim to the world in our worship, those things of first importance that we have to declare, the things that God has done, His marvelous works. And it talks about the gifts that we bring when we gather on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, on Sunday, etc. And right in the middle of that whole section, First Corinthians 11-16, through 16, <clears throat> right in the middle, and really permeating the whole section, Paul talks about love as the defining feature. It's the defining feature of our worship. And I know we're conditioned to hear this in the context of a wedding service, but listen to it in the context of Paul's instructions on worship, on corporate worship, and hear it. Hear in it. Uh, what it means to worship in the splendor of holiness. 1 Corinthians 13, which Tim already read, but I'm going to read that and uh, add a little bit more. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love... I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love, remember, continue hearing this in context of a description of what should shape the, the main features of corporate worship. Love is patient and kind, love does not envy. And by this, he says love never ends. He goes on to to sort of elaborate a little bit. He means that love will be the greatest part of our eternal worship. Life with God forever. Eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. The greatest thing that will abide forever is love. The greatest part of our eternal worship is love. So it really ought to characterize and set the tone for our worship now. And so Paul immediately goes on to talk about what the pursuit of love looks like when it's applied to the exercise of our spiritual gifts in worship things like prophesying or speaking in tongues and that's just another sermon to describe all that stuff but he says that when we're exercising these spiritual gifts and the goals of all our worship and our time together and the things we're talking about he says the goals of our worship should be the conversion of unbelievers again assuming that they're going to be present in our worship and that we would love them and we'd love to see them come to faith in Jesus. The goals of worship are the conversion of unbelievers, one of the main themes of Psalm 96, and the building up of the church mutual edification. He talks about, Paul assumes, unbelievers are present in our worship. He assumes that love will find a way to make the gospel clear and helpful to them at the same time that we're helping other brothers and sisters grow in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, toward the end of his letter, in verse 14, he sort of wraps it up and he says, let all that you do be done in love. And he's talking specifically, I think, for the most part about when you worship, when you're together for worship. Let all that you do, be done in love. Love for God. Love for one another in the church. Love for our neighbors who are outsiders. That's what it means to worship in the splendor of holiness. That's, that's a splendor of holiness is according to God anyway. Because of the nature of the true God who is holy. Because of the nature of of the triune God whose life and and being is love because of the nature of the God who opens his life to outsiders, this is what it means to, to worship in the splendor of holiness, to love, to let everything you do be done in love. The splendor of holiness then is embodied and revealed in Jesus. The splendor of holiness is embodied and revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus loves God. And Jesus is always telling everybody about God. His ministry, his earthly ministry, as you can read in the Gospels, mainly consisted, all the scriptures are, um, that he was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He was talking about God. He told people how good it was that God is king of the whole world. He was telling people how anyone can come to this king and find a good Lord, a champion and a protector and a provider for his people. He told people that God is the only good judge of the whole world. And he told people that God's judgment, it isn't just a mere pronouncement of what's right and wrong. He isn't just going to expose unrighteousness in light of his righteousness. That's not all that's going to happen. But when God judges, his judgment has the power to set things right, to turn things back to righteousness. When God comes in judgment, the world will be restored and all will be joy. And we're going to sing about it using what we usually use at Christmas time, <laughs> that song Joy to the World. Joy to the World is talking about the Lord Jesus coming again. To uh, to be the good king and the good judge that we need, <coughs> Jesus' message in so many of his parables and uh, and other teachings throughout the Gospels, it sounded a lot like our Psalm in uh, ver- it, like the end verses ten through thirteen. Uh, his message often sounded like this: "Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established; it shall never be moved. He." Will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Jesus was faithful to proclaim this message, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He was faithful to proclaim it, even though his teachings came into such conflict with the world that eventually he was murdered for them. This faithful witness to the kingdom of God that Jesus always bore. He said, "I, I just say what I've heard, what I've seen, what I've learned from my father. His faithful witness to the kingdom of God was what it looked like for Jesus to love his people, And to love the whole world, anyone within earshot. To love others, to call them to join him in his worship. In his relationship, his communion. With the one true God, with his Father. And yes, Jesus has said things that the world has hated to hear. There's plenty of that in the Gospels. Plenty of that throughout all the scriptures. Jesus has said things like, what you find in verse 5, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. I mean, them, them's fighting words. But he isn't just saying that to be antagonistic. He's proclaiming the true salvation that's found only in the true God. And it's the splendor of holiness, it's divine love for him to say things like that. And his aim isn't just to attack people by saying, your gods, all your gods. Are worthless idols, he's saying rejoice because you're invited into the worship of the one true God. So when we say things in worship, in the name of Jesus Christ, that we are compelled to say in faithful proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God, we say some hard things. We say things that someone doesn't like to hear. We're not just being antagonistic either. We're not just attacking people. We're not just interested in making self-righteous denouncements of anybody who's not like us. That's not what we're doing. We're loving each other, and we're loving our neighbors by proclaiming the true salvation, which is found only in the true God. We believe that you should rejoice together with us when we say all your old gods are a worthless sham but there's a one true God that you're invited to enter into worship. You should rejoice with us. The triune God alone is the creator. The triune God alone is worthy of all fear. The triune God alone is worthy of all praise. And we believe you should rejoice together with us when we say that you should fear him and praise him alone. You should be freed from all those sham gods that we were worshiping before. We believe you should rejoice together with us when we say that the Lord Jesus will return in righteous judgment. Those words, a lot of times you see them on a sandwich board, or at least that's how you see them portrayed on television. uh, That God is coming, the end of the world is nigh, uh, Jesus is coming to judge. We believe that's uh, news worthy of rejoicing. He has come into the world to establish his good kingdom by his great sacrifice. He gave his own life for his people on the cross. How can it not be good news that this one's coming back? How can it not be good news? When you look at who Jesus really is, how can it not be good news that this one is coming to fully establish his kingdom and to restore perfect righteousness and peace in all the earth? That's good news. And we think you should rejoice with us together. You should tell your neighbors this good news. You should sing this good news with us. You should be declaring this good news all day, every day. Telling all the wonderful things that God has done. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Sing a new song. Um, oh, we, we sang that song uh, earlier this morning. Sing a new t- song doesn't just mean Come up with new lyrics and rework some, uh, some tunes. That's great. Um, of course, that's good. It really means be converted. You need your song changed. Come in from the outside. Come sing the songs that can only be sung from the inside of a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let the songs of your heart be made new. Stop singing those old songs. Let, let your songs be made new. Let your heart be made new as you come to worship the, the true God in the splendor of holiness. In the name of Jesus Christ, in real love, turn your new songs out for the world to hear. Invite the world to hear us sing these songs in this place. Let the songs of the whole world be changed. Not just yours. But those of your neighbors and your friends and your family and everyone in the whole world, let them all be changed. Let all the songs be changed to sing the glories of the triune God, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Consider yourself called to worship. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark that you've not left us to our own will or our own devices, but that you've come after us, you've taken the initiative in our relationship, you've done everything necessary to make it possible for us to enter into true communion with you, true worship of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would turn our minds and our hearts more and more frequently to him, that you would help us to see our relationship with you only in light of him as our mediator, and therefore, only in the splendor of his holiness, in true holiness, in the true love that is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would enable that love by the power of your spirit to uh, be the defining feature of our lives, but especially of our time together in worship, for the sake of your name being renowned in all the earth, and to give you the glory that is due your name.